Welcome to episode 179 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined again by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? Good. We are in the throes of February now, and so things are seeming somewhat calmer in the world. I think this back-to-back weekend of Davis Cup and Fed Cup feels like relaxingly low stakes and nice. It's just a way to, you know, ease into things, um, unless you're a chair empire who values his vision, I guess, <laughs> to get right to the point of our first segment. Courtney, I know you didn't see it till later. What was your thought on the Denis Shapovalov uh, video moment, whatever you want to call it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, backing up, do you want to give some context for sure. it in terms of what happened uh, for okay. people who hadn't seen it? Well, will do. So, and you should watch this video and... Yes, you know, I agree with that it. because uh, watch the video. If you I had I it. had been reading it about Twitter because obviously it all kind of happened during the Super Bowl, so You're right before it, yeah, which is yeah, for him. exactly. So I wasn't really paying attention, but I was obviously seeing some of the tweets about it on Twitter. And as I read it, I didn't understand all. All this is to say, like you could know the facts, but definitely watch the video because I think the video kind of <laughs> well, it really drills down on uh, <laughs> on exactly kind of why it was why it has kind of kicked off. Uh, a firestorm of kind of yeah. discussion. It's eye-opening, to use another bad pun. Aww. So, Denis Shapovalov is playing in the fifth rubber, a live fifth rubber, of a Canada versus Great Britain first-round tie in Ottawa, Canada. Um, neither Ronich nor Andy Murray showed up for it, so it was a bunch of sort of uh, B-team kind of guys who were playing, and the final rubber came down to Shapovalov, who got the pick. And he was losing. He was, he, I think he was, he was down two sets, and I think he had just gone down a break in the third and um so canada he was losing and in anger he after he loses the point to go down this break i believe or at least lost the game he takes a ball extra ball out of his pocket and he's left-handed so he takes it out of his right pocket and whacks it hard hard like to his right and it flies direct he's standing about the center of the court right around the tee and it hits the chair umpire uh straight in the head and like bounces back off into the court. It's like how much velocity it has to his head, like absorbed none of the pace of this thing, or not much. And Shapovalov immediately realizes that he's in trouble, covers his mouth, and walks over and sort of stunnedly. And Brian Early, the referee, runs on court, and Shapovalov is DQ'd. Um, and for me, I mean, yeah, I guess Courtney. So that's the background. I'll, I'll let you have your reaction first because you, I know, like you said, you came at it later. Yeah, no, I, yeah. So I saw the video. I mean the next day, um, uh, on Monday. And yeah, it just really hits home in terms of how hard he actually did hit the ball. We've seen instances of this in terms of near misses quite a bit. And very rarely in the instances where we've seen a near miss with respect to a ball or a racket, has it really been one where we thought like bodily harm might actually result. Likely, yeah. yeah, it was more just like the conceptual idea of it. Like, oh my gosh, if if that bounced racket from Novak like hits a fan, uh, you know, and and doesn't injure the fan, but just grazes the fan or grazes a, a line umpire or a ball kid, like, oh, he should be disqualified. You know, it was always a more theoretical discussion and never really one regarding, you know, the actual physical harming of of a a person that is on court that is not one of the other players. And so this one, I mean, I mean, he thwacked him. Uh, obviously, not intentionally. I definitely 100 percent 
believe that. No one uh, thinks he's aiming at the chair empire. Yeah, no one. I don't think that he's aiming. I don't think that he's intending to hurt anybody. I think that it was a moment of frustration as opposed to anger, which I don't know if that's just a semantic, you know, debate. But I, I think it's a little bit different. Like, I think he's just kind of frustrated and just lashed out um, in the way that we see tennis players do every week. Oh yeah, it's mm-hmm. just in this situation he happened to hit the umpire square in the the eye and gave him a, a, a luckily just a black eye because. It looked like it could have been in far worse in terms of cor- cornea damage, retinal damage. Uh, and this could absolutely, given this guy's profession, could absolutely yeah. be a career-threatening injury. So, um, which you don't usually think about for, you know, these sort of things. And I, yeah, it's, for me, it's just, it, like you said, other tennis players. That's my main point, my main thought with this, um, which I tweeted like pretty much right away and backed up. And some people were pushing back on it or whatever. But this is a learned behavior Denis Shapovalov, who's barely, who I think it's his first Davis Cup tie, um, hasn't played much at ATP level. He won Junior Wimbledon. He beat Kyrgios in the Rogers Cup in Toronto, I think, last year. Um, or Montreal, I forget which one the men were in. Um, and he hasn't done much, but he has been watching tennis on TV and sees guys and women hitting balls angrily or throwing rackets after, you know, things go badly for them. And it's something you pick up. I mean, like everything, so much of what we see on the tennis court now whether it seems like it or not, is learned, copied from somewhere. I mean, even like recreational players, you know, if you hit a great winner and then like, you know, clench your fist or fist pump or whatever, or say, come on, you learn that from watching a pro do it. These are not organic, innate behaviors, you know, in our DNA. <laughs> That's kind of true because yeah. honestly, when I used to like play tennis recreationally with my friends, like even though I watch a lot of tennis, like it doesn't, I don't really absorb that behavior. So I wasn't really doing any of the tennis things, uh, uh, like impulsively and I just rem- just as you mentioned it I was thinking back right now of like when I would hit a winner which was rare but if I hit a winner or did a, a good thing like I literally kind of like like did soccer celebrations like I threw my hands up in the air was like running around the baseline like Woo! which is not something a tennis player does so getting back to kind of your point I think that sometimes the things that we do innately are very much not <laughs> the yeah. things that tennis players do. Like, who learns how to fist pump? We do it because those are the norms um, uh, in tennis. Like, that—that that is how you celebrate. Right. And, and that is how you throw, show your frustration is you throw things. Because that is, as I've said on Twitter before, more and more within the last 18 t- months to two years, we have seen it more and more, this type of kind of, like, um, petulant behavior. Yeah, completely. Yeah, no, I completely agree. This is just sort of the logical, sad progression of that. Like you said, I mean, a lot of times when Djokovic, like, famously threw his racket behind him at the French Open, um, it was he was throwing it not with a lot of velocity. I mean, it could have had a very unlucky, you know, landing and hit the guy in the face or the eye or something. Um, or Andy Murray, you know, uh, you know, sort of kicking that ball, which narrowly yeah, to, missed to, the chair Empire's head. Yeah, narrowly missed Dumasois' head in Cincinnati. And that, again, was not going anywhere near as fast as the Shapovalov thing. And it wasn't going to hurt same. him. And, no, same. and Serena, not. when she at Wimbledon, when she tossed the racket behind her and it just narrowly missed a cameraman's head. Or land, but it yeah, wasn't, landed on his lap, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't going to, like, hurt him. But it, Probably you know, not. but even in those situations, like it just kind of looked bad, and you're and, just like, man, like, do but, they really need to do that? I kind of don't think they do. <laughs> just my like my take on it, the one the the incident this is most similar to by far for me is the Nalbandian incident where um, Nalbandian got angry at, at losing a game and kicks, uh, you know, the box that the lines are just sitting in, 
and the mm. and the wood breaks and hits the guy's uh i rewatched that just today too and breaks and hits the guy's shin and he's like stunned and it's it's a sudden thing it's just it's just this sort of moment and this is my moral of the story you know we don't usually i feel like it has to be preachier on this topic than normal but just like tennis players have to realize that there are like other people like actual people with you know <laughs> with their own mortality <laughs> on the court um with them and it's not all about them i mean i was just trying to think can you imagine like like what it would look like in other professions if people reacted the way tennis players do to things not going well for them like if i'm like in the press room and like send a tweet that's a typo in it if i like slam my phone into the ground and pout or if you know some like i don't know you know waiter you know gets an order wrong and like spikes the plate into the ground sure but i mean this would be bizarre behavior it would be bizarre behavior but let's also let's not you know, draw together like false equivalencies. I mean, there's a difference between being in a state of mind where you are writing in a press room versus competing at an incredibly high level. And you're just kind of like blinded by your intensity, by adrenaline, a lot of things going on, you know, uh, mentally, physically in that moment uh, to, you know, kind of result in this kind of explosion, I suppose. Oh, sure. And so it's it's two different things. I don't think that that analogy works at all. But I don't think other sports people are, are, are you know, wailing away on equipment quite like this. You don't mm. see base- are you kidding me? Baseball people going into a dugout and like, you know, it's so much more rare than a broken racket in tennis, though. The base, the maybe, bat, the dugout. Maybe not. Like you know, dugout bats nice. in the dugout, beating up Gatorade, you know, things. Um, you know, but I mean, to the credit of certain like sports, like whether you, whether you talk about ba- uh, baseball or like basketball, or I'm sorry, baseball and football, I think that there's an inherent kind of like violence, not in baseball, obviously with physical contact, but that ball, we all acknowledge a baseball can kill you. Um, And so there's nets up and there's things like that to kind of like make sure and protect fans, Uh, football, all the violence is on the field. It's not really off the field where you could hurt like a, a, a fan or something like that. And in the instances where there have been accidents, you know, where football players run over an umpire or referee or you know, things like that. Everybody kind of shrugs it off because there's no intent. Um, but in this case, I mean, it's just, it's it's tough. It's tough to like look the other way. And, you know, he was eventually fined $7,000, which doesn't seem like very much. And again, like I totally feel for Denis Shpavlov. Like he didn't mean to do this. It's a fifth, you know, decisive rubber. It's Fed Cup. Like, I don't think this guy ever meant it. But I don't think that that should really matter that much. No, I, I think agree. it's still completely ridiculous that he will get $7,000 for what could be like ending, who knows, but could affect like, you know, an umpire's career versus like Heather Watson getting $12,000 for putting a hole in the turf out on court, you know, 17 at Wimbledon. Like at some level, you feel like every, like all everybody, like all the federations and the tournaments and the Grand Slam committee and everybody needs to like get together and be like, let's go ahead and like figure out our fine structure because fines and punishments send messages and you need to figure out what is the message that you're sending when it is far more injurious to a player to again not even break their racket like dent the ground at Wimbledon than violently fire a tennis ball at the eyeball of a of an umpire whether intentional or not like that that's just we need to figure that out like that you know because again if it's not Okay, it's an umpire, so I think that sometimes, and this isn't fair, but I suspect that this might be the case, people are kind of like, oh, well, the umpire is, like, part, like kind of knows that these things could happen, there's an assumption of risk or whatever, but what if, like, in all of those other instances where there have been rackets thrown and, um, you know, instances where players, like, break rackets at their benches right as a ball kid is running up behind them? 
um, yeah. where they miss they miss them by feet. Uh, and it, if it, that happens two seconds later, they're going to smack a ball, a ball kid. Like, I'm concerned about the ball kids. I mean, I, I think I think that matters. I think assumption of risk for a chair empire should be very low um, in terms of, you know, oh, yeah, you get the occasional, you know, you know, bazooka to the face shot. <laughs> I don't think that's part of the job description whatsoever. And I think also with Shapovalov, he hit the ball hard enough that it could have very easily hurt someone in the crowd. That was what was nuts to me, too, about it. I mean, like, you know... <laughs> Uh, the Cher Empire, whose name I'm blanking on. Uh, Gabas? Yeah, Gabas took one for the team, sort of with his face. Because, um, I mean, it could have very easily gone into the crowd. It was a small indoor arena, or, you know, a tight indoor arena. It's not like he hit it up into the sky or something. Right. So, I mean, all of it, it was just, that was all completely terrible. If you're going to get angry and hit a ball, hit it, like, but first of all, just don't do it. Just, like, control yourself. But also just hit, it, like, into the ground or something, which is really satisfying. And it, like, rockets up, and it's, it's, it's the way to go. I don't think we should be thinking that, like, umpires should be wearing helmets or like expected to have these things i think they should just be seen and this moment should hopefully be seen as like a flashpoint of where it finally crossed the line and players should should refrain from this in the future and i think punishment should get tougher i think you know miss or no miss i think that the the like you said i mean with the grass comparison or the wimbledon grass comparison that's a fine way to go but i think these sort of things potentially harmful things and you can that's obviously a subjective thing on you know how hard you toss a racket or who's nearby or whatnot but i think the the penalties for even if no one's hurt should still be higher it's just something people have to learn should learn to control and again yeah and it goes towards the idea again of like fines penalties are all supposed to be you know deterrence right that's just how we think of it it, it it's not like that money goes towards re-enriching you know the federations it, my understanding is it all goes to like charity and or development funds and things like that but um so it's not like you know so in terms of figuring out what those fines and penalties should be i think that the sport which is one that has always been uh the history of the sport has been about um like you know uh gentlemanliness and you know that whole country club ethos of what you know and therefore audible obscenities are like a thing uh you know what i mean which is like a bit absurd um uh just petulant behavior generally is is considered uh frowned upon um but and there is no more petulant thing than to do what you know what happened with shapovalov and you know you do have to sit down and you have to think about you know, do we need to step it up in order to put, you know, to rein in uh, the sport? That being said, you know, is this the type of, I'm just throwing this out as a rhetorical question. This is not necessarily how I feel, uh, not at least to this extreme, but, you know, do you want to be reining this sort of behavior in? Do you want to be, you know, penalizing it so badly to where players can't express themselves on court? And, you know, <laughs> you sound like Coco Vandaway. I'm going to say, know. like, I'm parroting the You're whole Coco Vandaway. You're ruining, WTA is ruining the sport, apparently, by finding people for, uh, or sorry, for, yeah, finding people for hitting a ball into the stadium. That's just one of that my shows, favorite clips because that shows, uh, that she, shows personality, I guess. Because um, she says that, and then her coach, Craig Carden, then says, like, to her, like, listen goes like okay but you still need to hold serve here <laughs> like like completely just like this is not the point of this of this match right now so right. It's, it's all pretty but, but, but no, no no but i mean I, yes i mean we can obviously make fun of that that singular moment but i mean even just you know from the broader perspective you know it goes towards you know the questions about about curios about you know all those players that that kind of t- that kind of tend to do things that are a little bit outside of the norm you know like we just have to McEnroe, you can go back to it 
yeah, you just have to like kind of go back and figure out like what exactly do we do we want to punish punish it in this situation? Is it just kind of like a a complete and utter one off? I don't know, but I'm sure that as people have probably discussed on Twitter, you can imagine the absolute outrage if this had been done not by a Shapovalov but by any other player, in particular a handful about five players, male and female, who uh, if they had done it, uh, there would be you know, protests in the streets uh, for their heads on spits, you know? No, I mean, I think if Djokovic did it, I think absolutely people would go sure. out of control. Um, Serena, probably. Serena, probably. Uh, and Azarenka, probably. Um, hmm. Yeah, but uh, I, I just I just think, I think there's a sort of line you're blurring, though, a little bit between, you know, things that are ungentlemanly and things that are potentially harmful. I think those are sure. different categories of, I agree. of bad behavior. And so I think they should be treated differently i agree um, i was just asking so. a rhetorical i mean no, I was, you know no, like setting it up i get why well, 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 one leads to the other yeah, yeah. I just think there's still a, a the slippery slope argument eff- effectively is what i'm right. what i'm trying to cut off at the past but you're right they're, they're, those are two different categories of behavior but again like we need to kind of almost sit down and as a sport figure out okay what are the different categories of behavior and based on that how do we how do we punish it and what is the message that we want to send to to fans and to players and to sponsors about what we as a sport value and what we kind of let go and um and again like i kind of feel bad that this is all stemming from a shapovalov incident like I know, right he's the weirdest he's like in a lot of ways i think he's like the luckiest person this could have happened to yeah because that's probably true. he is this 17 year old who no one has any previous you know associations with he looks like it's just like you know very Canadian hair and big eyes. It just looks like so harmless in his own way. Is that way. Canadian hair? No, oh, yeah, he's complete hockey hair. He has such hockey hair. Oh my okay, God. fair enough. I, okay. Absolutely. By the way, have you ever seen the videos early early rave of like the Minnesota hockey of like the Minnesota State Hockey Championships hair compilations? No. They, oh my gosh. Oh, actually, yes, so I do. I think it's I have like seen guy this. commentating I think you sent it to me. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Shapovalov would would score points in those. He's that kind of guy. So love it. Um, yeah. So there's, there's that. So in the future, just don't do this, people. Just find yeah. other ways. And the right. thing that I always say about the whole racket smashing and the smacking of balls is like, usually if you've done it, it's because you are frustrated because that you as a player do not have as much control over the racket and the ball as you would like to have. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in the losing situation that you're in. So like, maybe just entertain the idea for a split second that you don't have control over the ball or the racket that you're about to smash or smack so just like don't <laughs> I, I love your logic on this I, i've heard you say this before <laughs> but it's like the pettiest like like kind of like shadiest thing you're like if you can't find the court with your ball all day what makes you think you're going to be able to do it effectively when you're smashing it is so <laughs> demeaning and i'm really into it but um it reminds me of this other thing we haven't discussed, which I think is interesting. It came up during the Australian Open with Yannick apparently finding its players uh, um, for smashing rackets, I which I am totally that's... on board with. Oh, see, I, I am not really. Yeah, I think it looks bad for the. I think it looks bad for the brand. If, if you I don't think so an image all. of a smashed Yannick's racket makes it look like Yannick's is not doing his job effectively. So How many it. times have you seen a Wilson racket like the close up on ES for that ESPN provides on a broken racket, and now you didn't have a basically a 20, 30, 40 second commercial for Wilson in terms of brand recognition, understanding that Wilson is tennis. That oh yeah, Serena uses Wilson, doesn't she? No one thinks. I'm sorry, I totally reject the idea that somebody's like oh Nick Kier sure does hate that Yonix racket. I'm never going to buy a Yonix racket. I just think that rationale is completely made up. Like, I don't think that consumers think like I, that at all. At I don't all. Know. At I don't all. Know. If, if I was a brand exec, if I was a Wilson exec, 
sitting in Serena's box or in whoever's box and they go out there and demolish my product in front of millions, I wouldn't be thrilled. I wouldn't even, but I don't even see it as like, oh, okay, she demolished your product. Like to me, it's like, oh, she mad. And the thing that's in her hand is the racket. So she smashed the racket. But it's not like she's like, oh, darn you, Wilson 98 Blade. You are terrible. I wish that I was using the the, the Bobolot Pure Drive instead. I just think that that's <laughs> like such, that's like so stupid. I just don't, I don't buy that at all. Like if I'm Wilson, I'm perfectly fine every single time that somebody breaks my racket and there's a close-up that therefore then has a Wilson uh, uh, advertisement that I didn't have to pay for. Well, I mean, other than paying for my player to use my racket. And getting them a replacement because they broke one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when people talk about replacements, like, it's 300 bucks at most. It's a marginal like, cost for these It is not obviously. a lot of money. Yeah. Like, let's not sit here and think that it's like a NASCAR where somebody, like, crashed the car. You know, it's 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 chump change. They can they can afford it. Um, but again, but that, that being said, I, I do think that, like, when you're talking about... Um, it's funny. I think that it's, like, one of those um, contract clauses that would make far more sense for me if it was included in, like, junior contracts. So like when, like, in other words, that's behavior that you should not be incubating from, you know, a, a junior perspective. But like once they get to the pro level and they're like on freaking TV, like for millions and millions of people to see worldwide, I have no problem with my broken racket being on TV. But like, I don't want necessarily to encourage, like, in other words, I'm kind of splitting the baby. Like, I don't want to encourage that sort of behavior. But if my player is going to do it, I'll take that. I'll take that commercial time. Okay. I'm not sure I agree with all your logical leaps there, <laughs> but but so be it. Um, speaking of money well spent, segue, hopefully lots of our listeners have subscriptions to Racket Magazine, which is pretty great. And we talked about, we teased this briefly in the last episode, but Courtney is on the masthead of it as, let me open up and see what your actual title is, unless you know it off the top of your head. You are the uh, contributing editor, which is great. Yep. And I wrote an article for their second uh, issue. So yeah, so it's uh, been something, a project that we're both very uh, happy with and probably invest in our own ways. And we know a lot of people have been interested in it within tennis too. There's a lot of sort of like, there's legit like intrigue in the press room i think about racket yeah so hopefully yeah so it's, it's it's been cool it's been cool to see it take off yeah. yeah it's been it's been very very cool to see and and yeah it's it's a very at least i know for myself personally it's like a very nerdy venture it's 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 i mean when caitlin and david approached me about it um you know over a year ago um i was like absolutely 100 percent on board just because i'm if anybody knows me they know that like i'm all about trying to figure out ways for tennis to whatever platform like that is available. I want to see tennis try and get in there um, and stuff. And and David and Caitlin have done an absolutely phenomenal like job, like with the, the first two issues of the, the magazine um, getting obviously great writers. I mean, Ben was in it. Um, Reem, I think also wrote, I thought what a great one. I'm totally uncomfortable with you saying great writers and immediately naming me first. There are so many. Well, this is why I talk about the idea that I'm a little bit, you know, conflict of interest. This is why I don't really talk about racket on the podcast, <laughs> but Reem Abulil as well. Carol Bouchard uh, did an article on French tennis, which was phenomenal in the first yeah. issue. Uh, and then in addition, like Sasha Ferrer, jo- like I, I, I'm mentioning like the tennis writers that like tennis people would know, but like a yeah. lot of the writers that are non-tennis writers that have been writing for racket are freaking like giants like people that you just you're totally like floored uh are writing about the sport and that have allowed us to to publish them and so um all credit to 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 caitlin and david for just uh just doing it right 
so I, I chatted with them about Racket and forming it a couple days ago. And here is that chat here. And we do talk about things such as getting non-tennis writers to write tennis articles and commissioning art and all sorts of other stuff about that. So we hope you enjoy this conversation. Very excited to be joined by Caitlin Thompson and David Sheftel, the creators of Racket Magazine, which is a beautiful thing, hopefully on the coffee tables of all NCR listeners or appropriate other flat surfaces as your living space might accommodate. Uh, Guys, thank you for being here on the show. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Oh, very, very excited to do this. So Courtney's on your, your masthead, and I'm a recent contributor. So in terms of full, uh, you know, conflict of interest disclosure right up front. <laughs> but we still think this thing you guys do is very cool. And how did how did the idea to get to do this uh, quarterly magazine come about? So, uh, well, first of all, thank you. We're delighted to be here. We're fans of the show. And the fact that we've roped both of you in um, is a testament to our, uh, you know, admiration of you both. Um, So, yeah, the idea, you know, David and I have been friends for about 10 years. We're both journalists, and we kind of met through this weird um, Asia journalist expat community um, here in New York. Actually, our first, the first time we hung out was at the U.S. Open in 2007, where we watched Justine Henham chew her way through both Williams sisters on the way to Mm -hmm. a victory. You know, and we'd always wanted to do a project together. We'd sort of send each other ephemera and like, isn't this a funny article? Or look at this cool picture of Bjorn Borg wearing a fur from the 70s. You know, so we had this like really fun friendship. We'd obviously play together. Um, You know, both of us like to travel a lot. So it it spanned a couple of continents. And then um, I was reading this Neiman Lab article, which is a journalism sort of like industry publication, talking about Monocle. David had done some writing for Monocle. We bo- are both fans, especially sort of stylistically. And it talked about the business model, like how you actually sustain a publishing um, company with a really small reach, but a really specific reach. And we were like, oh, this is our thing. This is what we should do. We have this really strong belief in the voice of what we want to say about how tennis is kind of underrepresented in mass media. There's not anything like this, you know, the style, the visuals that we wanted to kind of pay homage to and bring back and also kind of like celebrate some of the swagger in the game that we feel like doesn't necessarily translate. So it was just like, so it like fell into place. I think David had the name on the tip of his tongue like 10 minutes later. We just got so excited because it was a a way that we felt like we could actually make this thing, a print only quarterly magazine with a small, you know, hopefully vibrant subscriber base, but at a high enough price point that we could we could pay for really great con- contributions, writing and illustrations and photography. And so far, so good. We're, we're on issue two, and I feel really great about it. No, you should feel really great about it. I'm just wondering, it's sort of the, I'm not as involved in periodical type stuff. I do daily newspaper writing mostly. And so I'm just curious, like the quarterly format, how did you figure that as like a sort of, as the right balance, the strike of, you know, being something that was sustainable, but still uh, elusive or scarce or, you know, desirable to not oversaturate yourselves or not spread yourselves too thin? Well, it was sort of sustainable for starters. We can, you know, it's a tiny team. So that's about, about all we can manage with the two of us. But it's also the standard independent magazine format uh, for a year, um, kind of try to do evergreen stories, stuff that's always going to be current. So one thing we're really pleased about is that people, we have the second issue out, but people are still buying the first one. So we just thought, um, we'd stay away from everything that Tennis Magazine does, basically. So we don't want to do anything too results-based, no tips, no gear, um, and just celebrate the side of the game that we love and we feel gets short shrift in the, um, in the sports media um, 
I just give a voice to to a lot of um, tennis journalists that maybe don't feel like they always have a home. People are interested in tennis during the slams, obviously, maybe if the Olympics come around, but then it goes away. And as I'm sure you know, the appetite for tennis, um, tennis writing and tennis features when the slams aren't on, pretty scant. So we wanted to uh, oh, yeah. to uh, provide a home for all the stories that writers, you know, sort of the dream stories that writers have but can't place in a newspaper. Maybe they're too long, maybe they're too weird, maybe they're too personal. Um, and that's uh, that's the stuff that we also want to to see and read. I have your first two issues sitting in front of me here. I guess what is there is there like you mentioned all those things is what you're looking for. Is there some sort of unifying thread through your pieces? You think so far are they all? Um, I know there's there's some themes obviously that probably pass across uh, multiple stories, but just wondering if if there is something that you think is like distinctly racket or the sort of racketiest thing you've yeah done, for sure you could point I definitely to. think that's true I think the racketiest things that we do um, Taffy Brodus or Ackner's story from the first issue comes to mind um, you know as well as Louisa Thomas's piece about Naomi Osaka from the second issue. Um, In one case, you have a fantastic feature writer, Taffy, who writes everywhere. She writes in the New York Times Magazine. She writes for GQ. um, And she tends to write a lot about a theme, to your point, Ben, that we really want to include in every issue, one of them anyway, which is sort of like access and elitism. You know, tennis is is a sort of an elite sport, but not really if you look at some of the history, where it's gone, where it's been, the public courts boom of the 70s and 80s, which also incidentally is a story we have in the second issue. So the idea of those themes um, is going to persist. And Taffy in the first issue talks about access and how by the time she could afford to be a a tennis mom, she basically didn't want to be and sort of the internal conflict of that. So that's a tennis story kind of, but it's really rooted in, you know, humanity and the experience and and what it is about our sport that that might attract or even repel people. And so my hope in, in that kind of story is, you know, anybody can pick that up. Anybody can like Taffy's writing, um, but you don't have to have a tennis background or context to enjoy it. You know, and then in the second issue, a really rackety story is obviously Louisa Thomas talking about a player on the pro tour, but in terms of her identity and her sort of, um, you know, self-formulation and, and how she becomes, you know, this is a woman who is on the rise. She's a teen. She has Haitian and Japanese roots, but she lives in Florida. So she's kind of like torn between a couple of different worlds. And it hits on another one of our main themes, which is just how global tennis is. I think, you know, again, one of the things that we love about it is just all these places that it gets to go. And, you know, to Dave's point, like the weirder, the better. Like we want to do little tiny microscopes of, you know, tennis in in. Borneo if we can find one and so for us like getting to travel and be in all these different conversations about the global nature of the game I think hopefully will help illustrate how cool we think it is and how we feel like you know it doesn't necessarily get um, get broadcast as widely as we want it to Um, and so those are the types of stories one non-tennis writer one great tennis writer but both hitting on you know beautiful lyrical writing that touches on our some of our main themes is is to me always going to find a home in each issue. No, I think that's that seems that was beautifully put, and I think it sort of reflects what I try to do, in obviously a different sort of uh, framing through the New York mm-hmm. Times, just trying to find stories that are outside the box and trying to find global stories. Like I wrote, you know, Osaka last totally. year, not, obviously in a very different way than Luisa did, but those are the sort of stories that show that tennis is a sort of universal language or this sort of common bond that can, uh, you know, connect very disparate parts of the world and a society, and can be this sort of interesting meeting place for people. It's in, in terms of in terms of a tennis match being like a conversation to get really poetic about it, I think that it can 
definitely speak to Wonderful. that. Wonderful. Sure. And I loved a lot of your pieces during the Olympics because no more than that time do we have the opportunity to really understand, you know, and Luisa made this point in, in her piece about Osaka, like, you know, this is a tiny flag that follows these players next to their names every single week that they play, certainly during the Olympics yeah. when they're when they're clothed in, in their country's colors. And I think that's so cool. There are almost no sports, especially for women, that have that afford, you know, athletes the opportunity to have that kind of dialogue and also the fans. And like that's so cool. I love that. Um, and you know, it's not an accident that we put a really celebrated French um, a Frenchman, you know, of African descent on our first cover, like, you know, Yannick Noah is a, an emblem to us of somebody who touches on a lot of different things. He's still like a cool international showman. Um, I went to a Knicks game and, you know, Joaquin Noah is playing his son and it's just like, oh, cool. This is part of the tennis conversation too. And that, you know, that's something that I think expands our world rather than contracts it. No, absolutely. absolutely. I guess you mentioned having tennis writer and a non-tennis writer in those two examples. I guess what sort of how how do you go about approaching and i'm not i'm not on the editor side ever really ba have barely been at all um but how do you go about finding writers to write about tennis who have maybe little or no tennis experience because that can sometimes seem like from the outside like a leap of faith you know this person their their general writing talent will be able to translate i think now that we have two magazines it's a lot easier um because it's obviously very important that the magazine look beautiful and we've got a great designer and and it does look beautiful so it helps um, to sweeten the pot as far as people wanting to be involved in it. But often writers will say, yeah, this is a good idea, but I don't know anything about tennis. And I'll just say that's great. That's a, we think that's an asset. If, there's, if you need any tennis help, we can, we can put that in an editing, um, fact-checking, et cetera. But um, we just explain that it's an asset that, that we want the perspective of people that, that aren't following the game day in and day out because it um, – it allows uh, us to have a fresh look at things, um, which is especially true for um, for photography as well. Something we always talk about is trying to use photographers from outside the tennis world because there's a, a vocabulary to tennis photography that we've seen over and over and over. Great photographs, but we've seen them, you know, Roger Federer gliding through the air that you sort of, um, you can stop seeing them because you've seen it so much. And I feel like that applies to writing as well. Um, so typically when you... Um, explain that to someone they they get where you're coming from and also we try to we try to pay as well as we can that helps it'd be harder to convince someone to uh, uh to write for free um yeah dave regard, did an but. excellent job in the first issue and this is somebody who's going to recur um in issues to come um uh is my friend sasha for jones who's a great great writer um he's mostly known in the states as a music critic although he's a fantastic musician um, you know, and he and Dave worked really well together just translating what ideas were in Sasha's head, who spent maybe an hour total of his life on the tennis court, mm -hmm. into something that was really meaningful. Um, and I think, like, that's a fun – I don't want to speak for you, but Dave, as our editor, like, that's a fun thing for me to get to watch you do. Because I kind of I throw elements at him a lot, and then he, you know, makes it into beautiful stuff that translates onto a page. And it's a really fun dynamic between the two of us as well. Uh, well. Thank you. Um, the other thing I'll say about uh, just about the general mix is that we, we want to have this uh, quote-unquote weird stuff and writers from outside the tennis world and artists and photographers from outside tennis to sort of broaden the tent. But also it's important that a decent chunk of the magazine, a third or a quarter of it, is sort of meat and potatoes tennis writing so that we don't 
alienate the tennis people either or maybe get it into the hands of a tennis fan at a tournament and kind of nudge them to read something they wouldn't otherwise or read a writer or a, a longer story than than um, they might be planning to when they sit down with the magazine. So that's um, an important part of how we think about it. You mentioned the how beautiful the magazine is, and it absolutely is. I'm just wondering, and I was excited to have uh, uh, for the story I did about Dominic Team have some artwork in there because I've I don't know if ever had sort of original artwork done for one of my stories at the Times, although I did do some of it. Um, not that I can remember off the top mm. of my head. Um, and obviously, and the, the Osaka story has this incredible artwork that's also, I think, on the table of contents page or somewhere yep. earlier in the magazine as well. I'm um, just wondering where, how that sort of comes together too, where, where you find artists to do it and how much instruction or guidance you give them. Again, this is, these are worlds I know nothing about in terms of commissioning artwork for things. So in terms of like the Osaka art, let's say, how, do you, how did you find this artist and how did it uh, come together? Uh, well, we have a really great designer who's... Um, who um, is kind of the unsung hero of the whole thing. And he's got a pretty big Rolodex of artists. And, um, you know, I've been keeping tabs on artists and illustrators and photographers as well. Um, I mean, to answer your first question, the less instruction we have to give them, the better. Those are the people we like to work with, um, sort of editorial illustrators who know the drill, can read the story or the brief, and have a great idea. Um, that makes us really happy. Yeah, I think for, I'm glad you mentioned your team story, because again, like one of, like I read you all the time in more sort of newspaper contexts, but having, you know, having you, you're a piece that you sort of get to bigger thematic elements like Dominic Team, who who tries really hard and overcommits himself so much, which probably is why he's going to be great, but also hopefully, you know, not, but possibly like somebody who's going to, you know, burn out or get injured. And I think like right. putting that next, you know, those are universal themes. Those are, those are. Those don't necessarily need to be, you know, written about in tennis. And also he's from this, like, you know, very alpine context. And so Mads, the designer, Mads Berg, who's a Danish designer who did our first cover, um, I think took inspiration from this idea that, like, there's this guy, you know, basically, like, scaling the Tyrols, uh, you know, mm. in the off season, and, and so created a very sort of, like, vertical, interesting image. We have, like, now, you know, I think Dave's being a little bit modest, but we have this, like, kind of – you know, I don't want to say like dictionary, but it's more than a Rolodex. It's like, <laughs> okay, who, what are the few th- like things or themes or ideas that we want to communicate and how, and you know, one of them is like a, a sort of like throwback travel poster look. One of them is like a dynamic sort of kinetic, you know, player in motion look that's very angular. Another one is like sort of very symbol based. So we actually have like a lot of very, probably boring to the outside, but very, um, Dave really drives like a lot of the very thoughtful conversations about what our like sort of visual vocabulary is. And I think, you know, that is, if not just as considered as the writing, very, very close um, in, in, in companionship. And that I think is why you don't have to read the magazine. We want you to, but hopefully just looking at it, you can at least tell what we're trying to do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think one of the things that I sort of talk Caitlin's ear off about um, <laughs> is is looking original. So that's something we think about a lot. There's a lot of artists that we love that I don't want to use because I don't. I think they're associated with another publication, or they don't look like we want us to look like. Um, going back to the Naomi Osaka story, we we love B. Johnson's art, and that's the um, illustrator, and just kept her in mind. And and one thing that she does really well that we remembered is big hair. And Osaka's got big hair. <laughs> so yeah. um, when we found out we were doing Osaka, I immediately thought, oh, B is great at, at big hair. So that's kind of how that, that one that came is, about. That is an impressive 
uh, dictionary of contact. I'm imagining like a sort of like an old school card catalog that has a tab for <laughs> big hair specialists that you can yeah. pull pull on. That's we should cool. definitely have one. We have a lot of plans. Ben, you're catching us, you know, at, at the beginning, you know, hopefully the beginning beginning of our life cycle. But Dave and I have a lot of plans for um, how things are going to be, you know, when we both don't have other jobs or responsibilities and can just do this all time. And having a card catalog of big hair specialists is <laughs> yeah. definitely on the list. No, there's, and there's, certainly... there's more out there than you'd think. So one thing I had to show her was a photo that we had done of Serena from the first issue um, where her hair is sort of. Um, front and center and say, you know, don't don't make it look too much like this one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, but that she did a great job, though. You mentioned life cycle. So I guess just dive a step slightly back before going forward. You guys did this Kickstarter, which was incredibly successful and set a, um, a high goal. It was 50,000. Is that right? Yeah. Your goal. So that was I remember when I saw that when, when you guys first started, I was like, oh, I hope they except we when we did our Kickstarter, <laughs> we set it at 3000. So we were being very unambitious but, well, but I mean, you, we were being very conservative let's say with you that. guys crushed it though if I yeah we got we got that within the first day so we were like that was good for <laughs> our like you know self-assurance but you guys had a, a climb so i'm just wondering in terms of taking this idea from sort of early germination to fertilizing i guess in kickstarter <laughs> how how was that process and how nerve-wracking was that and finally getting across it? how many days did it take you guys to past that threshold or how, how much like time did you have left 23 or 24 day 24 mm. of 30 it was up against it was tense dave dave was white knuckling it basically the whole time i thought we were going to lose him to some sort of aneurysm <laughs> he tends to be a little bit more a lot um, of refresh wore out the refresh button that month yeah i also remember just to um bring this back to ncr i remember you guys talking about like oh my god they actually did it like i was like what did you think come on you guys you and Courtney were like, how did, they actually made their goal, which I was like, um, it, it made me, in retrospect, realize that it might have been a little crazy. Um, but I remember you guys were, were uh, surprised. So that made we, me. I think we were relieved. I think I think just, I remember just when we saw, we heard, I think I'd heard about this idea before it hit Kickstarter, yeah. I'm sure, through Courtney. And then when I just saw the number, I just remember being like, ooh, because I remember we, again, we were on the very opposite side of this. And there have been other <laughs> Kickstarters we saw that, you know, I remember seeing some, cause when the month that I was like living on Kickstarter, basically when we were on there you saw lots of things that didn't make it that had yeah. very high goals yeah yeah, yeah. so that was just sort of you mean you, i mean with the way kickstarter works if you guys got into like forty six thousand out of 50 and stopped there that would have been you got nothing well, yeah it's, so it's, it's just a goal crazy or nothing. sort of yeah so it's a tough yeah you know, but you did it yeah well kickstarter is littered with you know the bones of dreams dream mm -hmm. projects you know left and right and there were a couple other magazines um you know if i can be totally honest i think um you know, and this sort of speaks to our ambitions. I think for us, we um, are friendly and love and respect and continue to have a great relationship with George Karashi, who's the publisher of Howler, which is a really great um, indie soccer magazine. We're actually doing a panel together at South by Southwest. Oh, cool. Forward promote. Um, and he had done an incredibly successful Kickstarter campaign for his first um, year in existence. And we basically... We called him immediately. We we have some friends in common. We ripped off basically everything they did. And if I can be totally honest, we were like, we initially were like, oh, let's try to raise eighty because they raised eighty. And basically, this is incredibly expensive. Like, this is not something that we expect to ever get like investors to buy into. Not that we would turn them away, but like, this is not a scalable business. Like, 
every single additional order costs additional money to print and make and almost all of the material sort of to Dave's point that you know money that we we get in goes towards paying people as high rates as we can possibly afford because we want the best people and also making a beautiful print product is not cheap like doing gold foil on the second issue costs an extra amount of money i'm glad we did it but you know these are things that i'm thinking about like how can we possibly pay for something that costs 60,000 dollars roughly an issue maybe even more to make and so that's four times a year that's 120,000 um you know no that's more than that I'm, I'm terrible at math by the way um you know so $60,000 per issue times four is $24,000 no it's still more than that and my it's point is I <laughs> my point is you know we have to be thoughtful about how we grow and how we get new subscribers and you know on occasion make really good relationships with a few companies that we think will be, you know, helping to tell our story. But if tomorrow we could get, you know, 50,000 people subscribing to this thing, we would quit our jobs, do it full time, and, you know, have that beautiful Rolodex of, of card catalog that we talked about. So, you know, we're trying to be thoughtful about how we grow into that um, and how we get, you know, bigger and bigger. Not that we, we will ever be big or huge, but just being sustainable. So that brings us to a nice, convenient uh, part of this, which is how should people, how can people get their hands on Racket? What are the best ways to do it? I know it's in, obviously there's subscriptions available on your website and you guys ship lots of places, if not everywhere, right? Yeah, the website really is the best way to find this. It lists the stores we're sold in, um, but it's also cheaper to buy it online. It's $20 on the newsstand and 15 online. So um, we encourage people to, um, to buy it from the website. Yeah. That said, we ship everywhere we want you know you to be, and we're working on being in the coolest sort of indie magazine stores. Luckily, because this is such a thing, this quarterly magazine culture, there are incredibly cool stores in almost every certainly major city, um, you know where we want to be because we want it, we make a lot more sense next to like Kinfolk or Monocle that I think than we do like in a pro shop. Um, you know, even though I would love to be sold alongside you know techno fiber strings in a pro <laughs> shop. I think it's as much of an essential, hopefully. And, and I do think the tennis players, and I certainly hope this in terms of how I write, and I'm, I'm sure you guys find this too, is that tennis people compared to, you know, not just, you know, magazine consumers are hopefully a more thoughtful, open bunch than your average, uh, you know, Joe Schmo, other sport. That makes sense. Yeah, I think sense. we've, uh, it does. I think we've realized that. Um, and I think having the magazine has really helped. Before we launched it, people were sort of like, I don't know how you're going to make a luxury magazine on your budget. It's like, we're not, it's not Golf Digest. Um, just sort of wait and see. Um, and now that people have seen it, I think a lot of people get it. And to Caitlin's point, you know, we consider ourselves um, in indie publishing as much as we do um, consider ourselves being in tennis. So it's really these, um, we have these two tracks that we're trying to um, make hay on, really. Yeah, yep. so we gotta, we got to keep making hay. So when you talk about um, being in tennis, I'm just curious, like, what have been your biggest surprises about trying to operate within this world so far? I mean, I feel like I exist pretty much within tennis, but you guys are more or less outsiders. Yeah, we so are. And I think... How, does that, how, how, how have you found... Just, I'm just wondering what kind of culture shock there might have been, if any. I, th I think we're still going through it. I mean, I think, like, you know, we would love to be fully operational in these two tracks. The indie magazine world sort of embraced us immediately because we spoke their language. We got invited to their sort of award ceremonies. We, we 
people wanted to write and talk about us in that context. I think the tennis world doesn't necessarily, I think it's it's a bit more of a translation issue. Like I think for people who are so fully ensconced and they just want scores, we don't, we're not bringing a ton to the table, even though I would argue that we are. Um, you know, I think also the tennis establishment is very, very conservative, especially in the US. Um, you know, there's like basically three main players. It's the tennis, um, you know, magazine, empire which is fine and great and you know I've been getting that magazine since I was you know a competing junior at age 10 and still get it today because I play in leagues um you know and then there's like the tennis channel which is like a pretty traditional um sort of broadcasting company and then there's uh you know the USTA and you know to their credit they're all colossal but none of them are like necessarily sort of on the bleeding cutting edge and so trying to figure out how we fit into that landscape also we're not really a competitor to any of those entities either like we see ourselves as a very sort of complementary outfit but i think in other countries it's been a little easier like um you know having conversations with with folks in tournaments overseas actually has been more productive largely than having conversations although we did sell really well in the u.s open bookstore but i think that's that's kind of on me to tackle and it's really tough to be totally candid so i'm glad you asked the question just because i would like to do better at it and i think one thing that i think we have going for us is now a couple of players want to write for us um, and we're going to have a big player piece i think in the next issue um uh, by a WTA player who's really thoughtful and great. And so, you know, I, th- I hope this will kind of bridge that gap or, or help us start to, because we'd certainly love to be sort of in the tennis world. But also, you know, I think David wants to keep us as outsiders. Yeah, I think um, as a person who doesn't have to bridge that gap, I really see our um, being outsiders as an asset. Mm-hmm. You know, to my mind, um, there's players that we think are interesting, and, and they're not necessarily the top-ranked players. Um, right. But um, yeah, I mean, to my mind, we want the we we need the fans more than we need the tour. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I I sort of see us being outsiders as an asset. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm again, I'm not the one who's trying to make the uh, relationships. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I think it's a little bit of both, and I think it, that kind of healthy tension is is I hope something that we we um, we ride uh, the line between that successfully but it's something that we definitely think about I mean you must be in the same boat right like you're credentialed at all of the tournaments you're you're uh, writing for major news outlets but you also on no challenges remaining at least you know kind of push the envelope a little bit more do you feel I mean no I, sure I, I, I feel like I'm constantly similar. pissing people off yeah if that's, if that's <laughs> no in a good way though I don't want people you know I I've had players um you know who've gone from you know, really not to having no opinion about me to really not liking me to really liking me. Mm-hmm. And when they really like me is almost the most uncomfortable of the three by far. You know, and I just feel like, you know, you're not supposed to like me this much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where we sort of take inspiration from you guys is that to me, you guys are sort of the cool kids in the back of the room making all the um, funny comments, throwing the spitballs, but then you still ace the test. So, um, which well, is why I- we wanted you guys involved. I, yeah. do not, I do not think you've seen our report cards if you think we're ace the test, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. All the solid B. Yeah, solid. So, we're, we're passing somehow. Uh, to me, B is acing, so. There you go. That works. Um, yeah, so you mentioned the player, player writer possibly just in as vague terms as you want. Like, what do you have uh, coming up in the future? Like, what should people look forward to if, if you can't disclose I want anything. I want Dave to speak about this because he'll 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 say some stuff I think without giving too much away but let me just say Dave is so funny to work with because he's like um my like gentle anxiety ball so he's like oh the last issue I found so many things but this next issue is gonna be the best yeah it's is always a great like, way well no what be. it is it's like the one I'm the 
the issue before the one that's out is great. The last one, I got some reservations. The one I'm working on, I'm nervous about, but the one after that, yeah. that's going to be the Dave's one. Dave's always <laughs> got his eyes on the horizon. But I think what I can tell you um, is that I hope we will have a player. She hasn't turned it in yet, but we, we have uh, a little bit of a mini package that's going to have a little bit to do with um, rivalry. Rivalry, yeah. Which is a theme that we, we think is interesting, both from, obviously, a professional standpoint, but also, um, you know, something a little bit more personal from the player's perspective. That's kind of how we wanted to frame any contributions we get from pros to be less like a player's tribune, like, this is what it was like that one time, and more like, if there are players who really want to sort of explore that, you know, kind of nuanced um, un, you know, self-exploration. Something like, you know, Andre Agassi did in Open with his ghostwriter. Like, that to me was one of the best pieces of sports journalism ever committed to paper because it was actually very self-aware. And I think, you know, I don't need a player to write for us, but if we're going to have some, I want it to be sort of in that vein. Yeah, and they can, you know, they're so associated with tennis that they, you know, if Andy Murray wanted to write about Scottish independence and not mention tennis. Like, that's fine, because everyone knows he's a number one tennis player, a number one men's tennis player. So, um, you know, to the extent that we can get players, it's sort of, um, sort of any idea is a good idea, as long as it's not, as Caitlin said, like, let me tell you what it felt like to turn my ankle. Yeah. Although that could be good. I mean, if somebody really, you know, got into the nuts and bolts. So, yeah, we have a bit of a rivalry package coming up. I, I, we have a couple pieces in the pipeline by players, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I think I definitely won't mention what we have going for the cover, but it's the most weird, exciting thing. It's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. Um, so, yeah, we're just uh, trying to, you know, keep what's working and sort of hone what we do best. Um, that's something we're thinking about going forward. And then we always want to have some fashion in there. And mm-hmm. we always uh, we're trying to we're trying to publish fiction as much as we can. And I can say that we have original uh, fiction for the first time um, in the next issue, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, cool. that's one of those ideas that we're always going to have if we can. And it's hard to get good original fiction. Yeah. So if there say. are any NCR listeners who want to send us any sort of pitches about original fiction in particular, um, you know, Caitlin at RacketMag.com is a is a good place to reach out because we we need it and it's weird and we want to keep doing it workshop it first though (laughs) (laughs) very cool thank you guys and i should also say if you want to hear more of your voices the two of you you have your own podcast which is also like you said sort of back of the class maybe even like further back of the class than courtney and i are it's definitely outsiders it's it's like from the parking lot it's like a juvenile detention kind of uh it's dave dave appears occasionally on the podcast it's uh my friend chris neary chris works in a podcast shop called gimlet which makes a bunch of shows right um and chris and i host the main draw which thank you for giving us a plug it's a small show with uh, a lot of misanthropic leanings but we have fun doing it so <laughs> thank you for the shout out we're all for misanthropic leanings uh, thank you guys very much go go buy racket go read it go tell all your friends to do the same it makes great gift, I'm sure, of subscription also for people in your life. So whatever excuse you can find to buy more of them, just just do it. Great gift. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, guys. So thank you, Caitlin and David. And thank you guys for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. And leave us reviews on Facebook, which is a new thing. We got a lot of you doing that since we had our last episode go up. So thank you for that. Follow us along on Twitter as well uh, at ncr underscore tennis uh subscribe to the show on itunes and any other subscription service of your choice there over uh you know stitcher radio tune in things like that 
wherever you want to be, wherever you go in this world, NCR is by your side. And send us questions, comments, whatever, on this show or on upcoming episodes, whatever, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Courtney, you have ranty feelings about things? Um, I do. The first one is, <laughs> um, no, it was just, okay, the Super Bowl, like literally, it was PTSD. I can't even, like, once it was so abundantly clear to me, like, I, I just I just remember watching the Super Bowl, right? Atlanta Falcons leading massively, they're kicking butt, third quarter rolls around, there's a slight change of momentum, you can kind of see it, your excitement starts to, to, to wane a little bit, and I just, there was this moment where there was, like, this pit in my stomach that reminded me of when I realized that Michigan was going to go <laughs> red, and I was like... Oh, was it Michigan? Yeah, I think Pennsylvania, it was Pennsylvania, maybe. Maybe Pennsylvania or North Carolina, I can't remember. But, um, and I was just like, no. And I was literally watching the last quarter, like in the fetal position on my couch, like silently. Like my father and my mom were watching, they were chitter chatting and like, just, oh, what a great game. And oh, this is so crazy. And what's happening? Like they were totally having like straight up like sports discussion. And I just was in a ball on the couch, just was, staring blankly. It was fascinating how quickly Blue America put all their hopes for redemption <laughs> in this game, which, first of all, was ironically like a red state versus a blue state reversed, but yeah. also, um, and the colors red and blue reversed, but also um, just like no one cares about the Atlanta Falcons, and yet suddenly they were like representing all like our, our lone source of hope in this world. I did like it myself li- too. I was yeah, like, I afterward, after, after they lost, I was like, why? Why does this hurt so much? <laughs> this is was, the thing. It was, it was a litmus test. It was a litmus test for the first kind of general litmus test in 2017 of like, you guys, have we turned a corner? Is everything going to be okay? Have we put 2016 behind us? Or is, are things going to be good? And it was like, no. In fact, it's going to just going to be the why same. why this was weighted this way for people who might have no idea what we're talking about? Oh, sorry. I apologize. Yeah, just uh, in terms of like, well, I mean just the narrative surrounding the game, which honestly was not, I mean, I think I saw some, I could be wrong in this, but I saw some tweets saying that like the viewership on this game was not that great. Like the fact that it was the Patriots, which are a very, very like popular team um, generally. Well, I mean, they're also one of the most hated. They're basically the Yankees of, of, um, well, no, they're the Boston Red Sox of, of, of uh, NFL. They're more like the Yankees though. I think they are because they're the dynasty. They're like the best ones. No, they're the best ones, but the Yankees always had the reputation of being able to buy all of their talent whereas mm. like that's not exact that's not at all what the the patriots necessarily do they've actually i mean all credit to bill belichick the coach and the management like they've done an incredible job of making this dynasty dynastic team in the cor- in the midst of absolute chaos in the nfl like it's the only consistent thing is is the pats and that's been pretty incredible but anyway so the patriots tom brady goat quarterback now at this point uh owner bob Kraft and bill Belichick, the coach are all like big trumpers like or at least they're friends with with uh, donald trump no. and so that became this kind of driving narrative and um i think on snl over the weekend which if you haven't seen you absolutely should just for melissa mccarthy's sean spicer which was amazing amazing um it's such it's like the best casting decision yeah. of our lifetimes it was just tre- tremendous but michael che on Weekend Update, closed out Weekend Update saying like, you know, 
I'm just really looking forward to watching the Super Bowl. I just, I want to check out. I don't want to think about politics and how like everything around us is, you know, collapsing and falling out of control. And it's just, I'm really looking forward to seeing like the blackest city in America, like beat the most racist city I've ever been to. Like it was kind of, and that kind of was spurred on, I think in a lot of ways, this kind of narrative of like Atlanta and the Falcons being the the underdog, which they were, the underdog minority uh, no, and Atlanta certainly is that, yeah. Yeah, and Atlanta is, is that, yeah. 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 And Boston and, certainly is all sorts of legacy racism, even yeah. if it is in a very blue state, yeah. Right, right, exactly. And so, yeah, so it was Atlanta versus versus Boston, uh, and, you know, you had freaking Nazis, like, tweeting out their support of Boston because they had, uh, and it was just a whole thing. So, yeah, once again, 3-1 lead, blown, whatever. But, um, yeah, it just felt it just felt horrible. Like, it just really felt, like, terrible on Sunday. Um, sports sucks. Anyways. That was kind of my <laughs> conclusion, too. That sports sucks. It hurt, weirdly. I That's the only football game I've watched all year. I've basically kind of, like, started yeah. boycotting the NFL. Um, I just don't like it as a product anymore. I don't have a ton of love for, you know, the coaches, the players. I don't have much love for the game style. I don't like watching men slush up their brains and basically die or put themselves, you know, closer to the to the to the death line yeah. for my enter- for my amusement and entertainment. I don't enjoy any of it. I didn't like the, the NFL's response or reaction to like Kyle uh, um Colin Kaepernick's uh protest. It just it just felt like all of a sudden like, oh, this sport is just not a sport for me anymore. Um and I didn't like it. And it's been interesting to kind of like shift a lot of my allegiances, even though I don't like it as a sport as much as I like football theoretically, but like I kind of like love the NBA now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, weird, I, right? I'm yeah, I'm sim. I'm I've been, I've been on a very similar path to you. Yeah, like, and I haven't even been. It's not that I sit there and I don't tune into every Warriors game, and you would think that that would be really easy because the Warriors win all the time, and oh, you clearly love NBA because the Niners suck and the Warriors are winning. It's like no, I don't really watch the Warriors. I don't watch NBA. But I'm far more, like, I read about it a little bit more. I'm aware of, like, what's happening in the league and results and all that. But I, just, I, but I won't, like, sit down for two and a half hours and watch, like, an NBA game um, without, like, intentionally doing it. Um, it's not, like, a passive thing for me. But, um, but, yeah, so this was, like, the first football game that I'd watched all year. And, and then it just, like, slaps me in the face like that. Sucked. I wasn't happy rude. about it. It was rude. No. I didn't appreciate it. It's just, yeah, it's just bad and, yeah, all of that. It, it was just it was just weird. It was very strange how, like, again, it was for me one of the very few football games I've watched all year, and at the end I just felt, like, awful, and I couldn't get it. I just, I was, like, I, I felt was like, mad at myself for caring. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that was part of it, too. I was, like, you don't even care about the NFL, and you got freaking sucked in again, and you, like, watched this thing, and I was totally not even planning to watch the Super Bowl. Um, because my parents were out of town. And so I was like, I, it was so stupid because it's not like I'm like 25 years old. But I was like, oh, I have the house to myself. I'm just going to like eat pizza, play my stupid board games, watch Harry Potter. And that's going to be my weekend. And I'm going to be really excited about it. It'll be very rejuvenative. And, you know, it's just going to be silence. And I can just like do my own thing and be in my I own head. I didn't think you were much of a Harry Potter person. I liked the, I like the movies. I've never read the books. Don't at me at all. Anybody, I'm not doing it. I never did it. They all came out when I was in law school. I had other thousands of pages to read, and I don't like magic shit. 
But like the movies are kind of endearing after you get past the two, the first two kind of stupid ones. Um, once Prisoner of Azkaban and on, I like them. So I was watching and it was Harry Potter weekend on one of the channels. So they're showing them all. Yeah. And then like my parents were like, oh, yeah, we're going to be home in time for the Super Bowl. And I was like, crap. So they came and I was like, oh, and I was like trying to play my video game or trying to play my board game. And I was like, but I kept like getting sucked over into the other room being like, oh, so what's happening? And then the Falcon started like totally beating up on them. I was like, this is the most glorious thing I've ever seen. And it just it made me care. It made me care. Yeah. And I hate myself for it. Sidebar, um, shout out. To, I, w- I went to watch the Super Bowl at like a, at a friend of a friend who was having a party. And it was fine, but it was also kind of annoying not being able to really hear the commercials that well, the people mm. talking. And so, like, shout out and quick mini rave for watching sports by yourself. Yes. A lot to be said for that. It was interesting. I was talking to uh, my boss about this, and we were talking about how, like, in the in the course, like, I remember, for example, long time, boy, these rant raves discussions really go a lot of different places with me, don't they? I'm sorry that I take you guys on such an adventure through my life. But, but like, I used to, like, throw, like, movie parties based on certain movies, like, theme mm-hmm. and whatever. And, like, they always were terrible for me because I genuinely just wanted people to come over and watch the movie. But it would just, like, devolve into a party. Like, so people would just be talking and they'd be standing in the corner, they'd be eating and they didn't really come for the movie and et cetera, et cetera. And it really bothered me. And that happens with like Super Bowl parties, yeah. right? It's like, if you have people over, it's, you know, people aren't really watching the game until they're watching the game. I don't know. It's just, it never really works out the way that you want it to work out. Right. If you're going to have, if you're going to have a, a party for an event, it needs to be something where you can, you're allowed to really tune in, tune out of attention. And that's the tough thing with Super Bowl because the, the ads are such an event too. Yeah, that you kind of have to like keep watching the entire time. Whereas, like, I think maybe the best, and I obviously my thoughts on horse racing are well known, but like, <laughs> I, I know like people who used to throw like um, I never went to one of them. Who used to throw, like a Kentucky Derby party, mm. and that seems like perfect because you stand around yeah. talking and drinking, you pay attention for three minutes, and then it's over, and you go back to talking and drinking. Yeah, and so well, yeah, so something that requires prolonged attention and silence is not ideal. Or just in general, like if you have a situation like where you can actually not pay attention during commercials, then I think maybe it does work. You know what I mean? Because like if I'm watching NBA game seven and I have a bunch of people over, we're obviously watching when the basketball's happening. Mm-hmm. And then when there's a commercial, you kind of all like zone out, get another yeah. beer, get some pizza, chitty chat, and then like pop back in again. And then it's halftime and it's just pundit talk. It's not a halftime show. Right. So, I guess so you Super can Bowl like... is uniquely bad for this maybe. Yeah, I think I think maybe that's true. Yeah. Did you have a favorite Super Bowl commercial? Having, did you get to I don't, go back I and watch I, I don't feel like I remembered them because I didn't get oh, to really hear them fair. that well. So I'll have to go back and listen to them. Fair one. enough. But 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 separately from that, I did have a quick rave. Okay. Um, because I didn't intend for this at all to be about the Super Bowl, but a clearly, you know, clearly 48, you 48 hours later, it's still it's still living within me. Um, but I just wanted to I just wanted to give a quick shout out because this has been like weirdly one of the most um, satisfyingly random things that I bought myself that I don't remember buying ever. But it was a subscription to this, um, as people know, I like subscription services, but it's called Bookish Box. You can find it at thebookishbox.com. I wish that I was being paid to say all this, um, but I'm not, I've actually paid for this service. But, um, But it's a box every month, because here's the thing, I love books, I love reading, I don't like book clubs and I don't like people like 
I kind of, this sounds weird. I kind of don't love people giving me books <laughs> um, or choosing books for me. Um, part of my enjoyment of books is the discovery on my own. Mm -hmm. um, and so like I've subscribed in the past to like those book of the month clubs where they they select a book and they send it to you. Invariably, they either send me something that I've obviously already read because it was like a top 10 New York Times bestseller or something like whatever, or it's something that has been sitting on my shelf and I've never read. And so I don't like those, but I obviously I like books. Anyway, the bookish box is like all the dope stuff about books without the book. So, so it sends you kind of like fun, little kitschy book related things. Um, like, so on the, the one box that I just got, what is this? Oh, well, I don't wear earrings, but these, these were pretty cool. They're like, like little earrings that, um, were inspired by Hamilton. Um, okay. and yeah, there's this, this, um, kind of like notebook that they sent that has like book quotes and stuff in it. Um, and people know that I love book, I love, um, like journals and stuff. So there's that. Uh, I got, I had a t-shirt that has like a Hamilton quote on it. Um, a Les Miserables bookmark and a wicked inspired bath bomb, uh, <laughs> which is probably going to go into a gift bag of some sort when I give it away. But, um, cause I don't use bath bombs, but yeah, like it's kind of, if you, if, in other words, if you're like literary and you like reading, but you don't need help getting books, but you like, like kind of like that kitschy stuff. It's, it's book fun. paraphernalia. Yes. Good call. Yeah. That is a much more streamlined way of explaining <laughs> what it just took me six minutes to explain. <laughs> Fair enough. I will keep my rave very short, um, but it's, it's ironically for a book. Um, <laughs> it's for, I just bought like my third copy of it today because I'm always lending to people and they don't give it back, which means it's good. Um, it's for levels of the game. Have you ever read this, Courtney? I have not. It is amazing. It is like the best tennis book ever. Um, so it's a tennis related Ray, which is rare. Um, it's by John McPhee. It is about the, um, it's all about one match and just sort of weaves in and out of history. It's about a 1968 US Open semifinal, uh, between Arthur Ashe and Clark Grabner. And it's all just very lyrical and great and sort of stream of consciousness and wonderful and a master a, ma a masterpiece of like American and probably world sports journalism and writing. So I just highly recommend it. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's short. It's like maybe 150 pages, but it's well worth it and tremendous. So yay, go buy Levels of the Game. And then I'm sure Courtney's subscription service will get you like Levels of the Game handkerchiefs or something. Exactly right. Yeah. See? Look, there you go. It all, it all works out. <laughs> it all works out. And with that, we will see you guys next week. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Well, we're big rock singers. We got golden fingers and we're loved everywhere we go. That sounds like us. We sing about beauty and we sing about truth at $10,000 a show. Right. We take all kind of pills to give us all kind of thrills, but the thrill we never know is the thrill that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the road. Stone. Rolling Stone. Wanna see my picture on the cover? Stone. Wanna buy?